0: Welcome to Subscriptions for Authors. Meet your co-hosts, Michael Evans, sci-fi thriller author of a dozen novels, and Amelia Rose, a semi-romance author that makes six figures per year in subscriptions. Together, we will help you make more money with subscriptions and succeed in the future of publishing. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Subscriptions for Authors Podcast. So Only James is just a titan in subscriptions. She's an romance author who literally has well over a 1,000 people paying her monthly and generates well into the six figures in revenue each year from her subscription. Now, Only has a lot of different tiers, a lot of different things she's doing in her subscription. But one of the coolest parts about her subscription is how she's able to utilize merchandise. That's a big part of her subscription. It's also a big part of her business that she monetizes through all the cart sales of people just buying merchandise one-off. And we're gonna learn so much today about how Only's built her CUNY, about how she's grown her audience, about how she's been able to Really build a fandom that is so dedicated to her merch, to the clothing brand she's building, to the world she's building, and how she's being able to build just an incredible business off the back of it. We're so grateful for having Only on. Only's an awesome person and just has so much insights about how to succeed in subscriptions. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Now if you're looking to get started on your subscription journey, there's there's a few things I had to recommend to you. We have our free book on how to succeed as a subscription author called Subscriptions for Authors. You can download it and link in the description. We also have a free summit. We did a virtual summit in 2023. That was super, super fun and you can look at all of the episodes in a playlist on our YouTube channel or on our website. And we even have an accelerator coming out, Cohort 2.0 of the Descriptions for Authors Accelerator. And it's designed to help you speed up your journey to becoming a six-figure description author, just like Only, just like Amelia. So you can join us there and you can find the link to that in the description as well. Am going to hold us back anymore from this episode? It's a ton of fun and we have a lot of episodes dropping in the next like 4 ish weeks so get ready lots of subscriptions for authors fun coming and i hope you enjoy this episode only i am so excited to be here with you today because you have Easily one of the most impressive and successful subscriptions in the world. And before we actually talk about your subscription, what you're offering, and how it's going for you, I want to talk about when you started it in your career, because you've been at this for a very long time, and why you started it at that specific point in your career.
1: I started the Patreon, I want to say mid 2020. I had just launched probably the first finished series that I had done in romance as opposed to like my YA career. And I had a little bit of a following. I was doing pretty good. I was starting to make the same amount of money I made when I was nursing. So I was like, you know what, like I'll start a Patreon, see if I can get some followers, see if people will, you know, want to read as I write my stuff. You know, just give them little extras like the mini minifix and stuff. And then I really just started it just to have an extra source of income because Amazon is always so volatile, and I'm a KU author. And honestly, I. Don't feel comfortable being beholden to any one organization for my income because I do have to take care of a lot of people. So it was really just the idea of this is just going to be another level of income for me and always trying to find like different ways to like make money without having to do more work for myself, essentially.
0: That sounds like a dream. So we're going (laughs) to have to unpack actually how to do it, especially the not creating more work for myself. That's the key underlining. Bold, but I definitely relate to wanting to extend your income beyond Ku, beyond Amazon, and you actually have an amazing merch store that we'll talk about too because I have two questions there. But let's talk first about your subscription and about your tiers because I love what you have going on. And for those who aren't sure about your subscription, I'll link both to I'll link to your subscription in the description so you can go check out what Only is doing. But you have tiers that range all the way from five dollars to $50 a month, and you have, at this point, over a thousand people in it. So where are your most popular tiers? Is it the
1: $5, the lower tiers, or are they a lot in the higher tiers? My $5 tier is, I would say by far, my most popular one. I think it's because that's the one that's affordable for everybody and they don't feel like they're really crushing themselves financially just to get access to more stuff. My top tier is always sold out, but I keep that limited. Um, I only open it once a year for 50 subscribers and then I close it. So every year I add another 50 openings and then usually within 48 hours, those close up and then I don't do it again for another year. Yeah, this is the second year I've done that. So that's why I have a hundred of them. Actually, I think I have 101 because somebody's accidentally declined and then they were like, please let me back in. So I like created a slot just for them. But yeah, so it's like 101. That would be, I would say $5 is my most popular and then $10 is the next most popular.
0: Okay, that $50 tier is super interesting because at that level, they're getting tons of stuff. But let's start with your lower tier. So we oftentimes talk about the podcast, early access, which you do. You utilize that your $5 tier, sending weekly work in progress. And a lot of times authors who are doing that come from the world of serial fiction. And a lot of times authors who are in KU wonder, is early access something I can make work for me? but you have done it. So how have you made Early Access work for you as a KU author?
1: Honestly, Early Access was the best decision I ever made for multiple reasons. One, just because it was something that I could offer that I was already Mm -hmm. doing. Again, no no more work for myself, but also because every person who reads in advance is a beta reader. Every single person will look at my stuff. They'll give me instant feedback. If there's plot holes, if there's something that I screwed up, if there's something that everybody's like iffy about, I know it before I write chapter two or four eight or ten. So I can basically head off any disasters at the pass before it becomes a book and everybody's like, wow, she really like tanked that last book. So stuff like that. There was never a downside for me I know a lot of people were always worried about do you worry about pirating do you worry about people giving away your books do you worry about there's a lot of things you could worry about honestly you could probably come up with a million reasons why you shouldn't do anything but people who pirate your books are going to pirate your books regardless my books sometimes are pirated before they even launch just it happens art copies get out there people who were pirate your books were never going to buy your books anyway so I try not to dwell too much on that but yeah I think the work in progress is it's not the most popular feature of what what I do, but it's definitely helpful and beneficial to me, and it's an extra added thing that I can offer readers.
0: That begs me to ask: What is the most popular feature of what you do?
1: The mini fix that I do, okay. because there's a grouping of characters that I don't about anywhere else, but on Patreon. So, in order to get access to those four characters together, they have to sign up for my Patreon. Oh, that's
0: super. Uh, okay, that's super interesting, and I'm curious because every author I, when I talk to, I always find that there is that one benefit. That kind of drives most of the people to get over the edge. So, like, people will like the early access. You also do some fan art, access to newsletters, serial chapters in advance. And you have, we're gonna get more into merch later, but you also have access to exclusive merch four times a year, which I'm assuming they're getting access to the merch drop. They're not actually getting the merch itself at the $5 tier, at least, right?
1: They get merch at the $5 tier. It's just not as big time stuff. Like, they have stickers, postcards, stuff like okay. that. Then when you get to the $20 tier, that's when you get t-shirts and cups and stuff like that. So just elevated work. That makes sense. More like
0: swag type of stuff. That's easy to ship in like a, a letter. So it's not too expensive. Exactly. That makes sense. And for marketing your subscription, how have you got it? You have a lot of readers in your subscription. Is it the back of books that's worked well, social media, newsletter? Do you have an indication of what funnel has worked best to bring a KU readership into a subscription?
1: I will say that honestly, you need it everywhere and i think that's where a lot of authors don't really push hard enough because i feel people don't want to be like buy my patreon because they're going to feel like oh i don't want to be pushy, oh i don't want them to think i'm trying to scam them out of more money, that kind of thing. And i had to stop thinking about it as i'm an author and more like i'm a business person and i'm a business person who's attempting to scale my business and i'm a you know and i'm a, in a position where i have something that i know people want to have. So I wanna make it affordable for them, but I also wanna make it lucrative for me. So I found a way to do that and I put it everywhere. It's at the bottom of every one of my newsletters. It's in the back of every book. It's on my link tree, which is in every single one of my Instagrams or any one of my social medias. And then Instagram is actually probably my biggest draw because whenever I drop a new fic, one of uh, my social media girl will make a reel about it Mm. and add my link to it. And then that usually draws a lot of people. I usually get, on an average fic, I will probably get another 20 to 25 subscribers Mm. in a day. But if I drop one of the, we call them the core four fix. If I drop one of those, I can pick up a hundred to 105 subscribers in 24 hours.
0: Whoa. Yeah, that's powerful. You gotta use that wisely. Wow, that's great. Yeah. You have what's working. That's mind blowing, huge congrats. And for these higher tiers, for people who are at $50 a month, that's exclusive. That sells out in 48 hours. So are you like pushing that on your mailing list and saying, hey y'all, 50 spots
1: open. I n- I never get a chance to put it in my newsletter. The minute I put it up on my in my reader group, they're gone. Ah. I don't think I've ever had a chance to put it up in my newsletter. As a matter of fact, I get people asking me multiple times like during the year, are you ever going to open those back up again? Are you ever going to open those back up again? Because they're desperate for those book boxes and for the exclusivity that comes with just being the $50 tier. Like I, to me, it's wild that people are that interested, but yeah, no, I think that the exclusivity is what draws people in and what keeps them wanting to be a part of it because it's really nothing. They don't really get anything more than they could purchase from me because when I do my book boxes, they, the the first time we did it, we did everybody on the $50 tier gets their book box. And then we offered 50 to just anybody who wanted them for $275 a piece. And those sold out in three minutes. So because people, that was all just Patreons that weren't part of the $50 tier. So then my non-patrons got really upset that they didn't get a chance at them. So we added another 25. And then those sold out in less than 60 seconds. And so that was crazy. But then I didn't do any more. I was just like, nope, we're not gonna do it again. So we got that run out. We got all 75 boxes out, which was crazy. And then we just did another run April 4th, and we just left it open for 12 hours and got like another 200 boxes sold. And we did, you could buy the whole book box, but if you had already bought the books without the swag, I did a separate one where you could just buy the swag that came in the book box by itself. So the book box was $325. And then if you wanted the swag, I think it was $75 just for the swag. And yeah, I think it was like 300 orders total. So... Sixty four thousand dollars in a day, not bad. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's a
0: day. Wow. Okay. So yeah. I part of me wants to dive right now into now, your merch store and direct. But then another part of me yeah, wants absolutely. to dive into how you even built this ravenous fan base to begin with, which I think we should talk about that first, because <laughs> then we could talk about the merch and all that's just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So your journey. And where did it all start? And really I know for you it was it's MF romance that took off. You have T- talk me about that and how you built this fan base where like, you can wake up, open your store, and have a $64,000 day. That's just, that's wild.
1: I guess before I started writing mail, I used to write YA Paranormal. And before I started that, I, did, I read a lot of fan fiction and I read a lot of, just, I, I looked at books that were super popular. Twilight all the ones that you would go what is it about this book that actually blew up and I just started studying what types of characters people were super obsessed with what were their personality traits what were their quirks mm-hmm. what was like what was it that was so attractive to people about the Style Stilinski character in Teen Wolf that was like so sarcastic but he wasn't the main character like why did these like little minor ships like pop up, these slash ships that we're never gonna be in the main canon of the, the show, but they are super popular in fan fiction. So I just started studying stuff like that and I have a psych background. Uh, so that was fascinating to me. And also I'm autistic, so patterns, pop up very quickly to me. So after a while, I started figuring out what it is that makes people really interested in a certain type of character and how to write that character to where people are almost instantly in love with that character and feel empathy towards that character and want them to have good things, even if that character is a murderer. I've just figured it out. And now I do it with my eyes closed. But in the beginning, it was very, it was trial and error. So my first four books or so, they did okay, and that was mostly because I had friends who were already very well-known male-male romance authors. And so they were pushing my books for me because they had beta-read them, and they were really encouraging, and they had been my YA readers. So, so it was like a mutual fan club. Like, I read their mail, they read my YA. Like, we liked each other. And they were like, you should definitely write male romance. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So my books were doing okay, but they just weren't it. And then I was just like, I wrote a character that was a sociopath, and everybody fell in love with him. <laughs> And everybody told me not to do it. They were like, absolutely do not write this character. You're gonna be labeled a dark romance writer. Nobody's ever gonna take your stuff mainstream. Nobody's ever gonna want you in the bookstores. Don't do it. And then I was like, I'm not only gonna make him a sociopath, I'm gonna have him give his partner a heart in a cooler as a gift. And they were like, no, don't do it. It's not a good idea. And I did it anyway. And it was like the biggest book I ever sold up to that point. Everybody was obsessed with it. And so after I finished that series and then the spinoff series, I was, I don't know where to go with this. So I kind of pulled my group, my very, at the time, probably 1,200 readers. And they were like, we want more psychopaths. We want more dark, like dark characters, like morally gray characters. And I was like, I'm obsessed with all things true crime. That's a huge thing for me. And I'm a big Dexter fan. I'm big into the Umbrella Academy. I'm big into graphic novel type stuff. So I was like, what if I just go completely cinematic, go huge, go seven psychopaths being raised by an eccentric billionaire. And nobody knows that by night they're like vigilantes, but during the day they're like these spoiled billionaires' kids. And it was so over the top that I was like, this is either going to do really well or it's gonna tank immediately. And this is where having those 32 at the time patrons came in because I about (sighs) chapter three, I make this really dark joke, this really dark joke. And I was like, this is this will be my litmus test. Either these people are on board with the dark humor and the violence and the graphic stuff or it's not, and maybe I just need to rethink things. And of course, everybody just started like going crazy about it. They're like, this is so funny. I can't believe I'm laughing at this. Like, And I realized that I can get away with almost anything as long as I make it funny. No matter how dark I make it, no matter how sad I make it, no matter how gory I make it, as long as there's moments of romance and humor and sex everybody's on board and honestly the first book i closed the door on the torture at the end so they didn't see what happened they just heard the aftermath and they were mad they were mad that they didn't get to see the bloodshed they were mad that they didn't get to see the torture scene they were mad about it so after that i was like all right gloves are off and then it became a game like what kind of torture can we torture the bad guys with this book. And my, believe it or not, my best work came from my hairstylist, who was this crazy guy from New Jersey, who was just like, have you ever tried this? And I was like, why do you know so much about torture? Just FYI. And he's like, oh, it's just something I look into for fun, says the guy holding scissors to my mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I just thought, I'm just gonna go over the top with it. I'm gonna make it, because the stuff that gets big, Twilight, stuff like that, you see the merch everywhere. The Mortal Instruments series, merch is everywhere. Everything is all tied together in one package. But in order for all of that to work, you have to make people care about your characters. And you have to give them something that's more than just, I don't know, just your everyday average plotline because we've all read everything before and nothing I'm doing is really groundbreaking, but I just threw it all together in one package. And I think I just, ha- it was because mostly I had the audacity to have seven gay brothers that weren't actually even biologically related. And the father was gay and everybody was like, wait, everybody's gay? Everybody? That's statistically impossible. And I was like, I don't care. And I was like, you would think that the billionaire eccentric guy raising psychopaths is the most believable part but the gay part is the stuff that's just throwing you guys off. I'm like, really? <laughs> but yeah, that was the stuff that kind of tripped them up. But I was just like, in my world, everybody's gay until they tell me otherwise. That's just how I roll. <laughs> I-, I love it. If you can assume that everybody's straight, I can assume everybody's gay. Yeah. That's just how I do it. No, that,
0: <laughs> yeah. that's just awesome. That's so killer. Amazing. And I love the, p- the pivot in genres <laughs> and then you being able to take off. This is amazing. I'm curious, you mentioned that merchandise And almost like you thinking about this because now I know, spoiler, you do really well on merch, but was this something in terms of the world and the branding? You were thinking about this even years ago before this all came to be?
1: Yes. Yes. When When I was writing YA, my books were popular. Like my YA books were popular. I was a USA Today bestseller. I was featured in like Grammy swag bags and the Teen Choice Awards and stuff like that. People were reading my books, like celebrities were reading my books, but I wasn't making any money because in YA, you have to pump out a book a month. And I just didn't have that kind of time. I was a full time nurse. Yeah. So, and my books were like 152,000 words a piece, like they were huge. And, but I had a really rabid fan base. I had like 3,500 people in my reader group. I had patrons. I was like, I was doing it, but like I was getting disheartened because no matter how hard I work it seemed like nothing was really working. But in the meantime, like, people were put, getting tattoos of my characters on their body. They were buying t-shirts of the cafe that one of my werewolf characters owned that said staff on the back. So I knew that if somebody cares about your characters, they will want anything they can get their hands on that has to do with the books. So I always just figured, as soon as I got to a point where I could think past swag and start thinking more merch, that I would eventually bring in that aspect, but I had to actually have readers first. Yeah. So... I always just have, like I said, I have like a little bubble that I do. It's like my books and then Patreon merch. How can I keep those three things going and how can I feed all three of them together to make them always be growing and expanding and working for me long-term?
0: Yeah, no, the reader's first thing you say, because characters being important, it seems like it's something like Facebook ads or Amazon ads. Did you utilize much of that or was a lot of this growth really where?
1: I don't do ads at
0: all. Yeah, that's, I don't do ads at that's, all. That's really, <laughs> I have to ask you, With your psychology background and also i have to say i love absolutely love your tagline because it's all all about murder is my love language that that's that that gets that's in the dark fields right but if you had to give advice to writers because you shared very much the how you did it but if there was like three tips about the psychology of readers falling in love with characters even one tip that you would want to take home with that you would Anyone can apply to whatever genre they're writing. What would that be?
1: I would say one, I write in deep POV. So I get rid of the so and so thought, blah, blah, blah. Like anytime you hear the word thought, think, like anything that pulls people out of the story, like and reminds them that there's a narrator, like it throws them off. Even though I write in third person, I always write as if I am that character. And so I get rid of the words that kind of throw people out of that feeling. Also, I don't shy away from the characters' emotions, regardless of what they are. Like, I'm in my characters' heads a lot. I try not to go too crazy with it, because obviously you want to keep that dialogue narration thing almost a little dialogue heavy. But a lot of people just don't go deep enough with their characters. And I don't think that they really focus, especially in our genre, where everybody's writing angst and everybody's so all the time i don't think they, they dig deep enough into why their characters are the way they are and when they don't do that they run the risk of a person being like i really hate this character if you knew their backstory it was that every villain is a victim whose yeah. story hasn't been told and so to me that's how i look at it so even the worst person you can make people feel sympathy for them if you give them a backstory that is realistic enough and tragic enough. And so unfortunately, I have no shortage of stories because I used to work in a children's psych ward. I have no shortage of stories that are tragic and horrible. And that kind of is why I think people find my characters very realistic. And I think it's why they are attracted to my, I write about characters who are autistic. I write about characters who have ADHD. I write about a lot of neurodivergent characters, people with bipolar disorder, people who have like issues like cutting and stuff like that. And I think that because I don't make that their entire personality, it's just one small aspect that a lot of people who are also in who have those things that they have to deal with on a daily basis and who realize that it is not their entire personality. They appreciate that. And I get a lot of people saying, thank you for writing this autistic character. Thank you for writing this person who has ADHD, but they're not like bouncing off the world, the walls, like, squirrel and that kind of thing. Getting into the, the character's motivations and and who they are as people. I think that a lot of times we don't dig deep enough before we start writing. If you know where they're coming from beforehand, then you can write as them, or I'm just crazy and I just become other people and I might have dissociative identity disorder. I don't know, I just, but I try to get into that person's head and stay there for the duration of the, the chapter at least. So those were my two big ones, That's- I think. Oh, and study fan fiction. I don't care what anybody says, fan fiction. Fan fiction is the key to everything. And I don't wanna hear anybody talk badly about fan fiction.
0: I love it. I love it. Super (laughs) interesting. Studying your own fan fiction, maybe fan fiction about your stories. I can't recommend that, but studying other fan fiction is great. Only because oh no, no, I would never read that. You shouldn't read your own fan fiction for legal reasons. (laughs) Wow, that was super insightful. First of all, just want to say thank you for creating your stories and so many authors that we have on do inspiring things. But it's just, it's amazing that you're creating a space for characters like that to come to life in. 3, 4, 5D, and not just the 1D that we can see oftentimes. It's so important. And thinking now about the growth of your subscription and your merch business outside of how you grew these two. We talk about the book stream. It's clear how that grew. The people loved characters and they shared it. But now you have these two other yes. streams of income that are very important. Yes. So you mentioned that you had only 30 people on your subscription. I shouldn't say only. 30 is great. 30 is great. Yeah, no, right. is great. But, but compared great, to where you're at start. now, I should say you, you are quite <laughs> yeah. farther than that. So, how long did it take you yeah. to like wh- when you launched your subscription? What was it at? And then was there an inflection point, or it's just been that sort of I
1: shouldn't say slow growth, but gradual growth to where it is now? It's I would say exponential growth in that there was. In the beginning, obviously, like from 2018, I think when I launched my first romance to when I launched Unhinged, which was the first book in my Necessary Evil series, that's where I was slowly getting people one or two a month, maybe sometimes on a good month, five. And it was, but I wasn't putting anything into it because I didn't have a lot of people and I wasn't focusing like I should have been on growing the readers that I have because I just read your article that you sent out the day that you guys were talking about how it's easier to keep a fan than it is to like get a new fan and I think that's what I've subconsciously been doing is I'm very much concerned with keeping the fans I have versus obviously I always want new fans but those super fans are the ones who pay my bills. And they're the ones who come back for everything. They're the ones who spend $300 in my merch store in one go. So those are the people that I want to pay attention to, but I wasn't doing that in the beginning. So when Unhinged hit, and it was pretty successful, I probably doubled my income with that first book launch, which is hilarious because everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. I spent the entire launch day crying, telling everybody that I had already screwed it up and it was just a disaster. It was the Unhinged book launch. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So it was just, it was an unhinged book launch for sure. It was awful. But then by the time Psycho launched, it was definitely doing better. Like I had gone from say making $4,000 to making like $8,000 a month. And I was like, holy crap, like that was a lot of money. And then when the third book came out, I had already doubled my income again, just off Royal. So that is when TikTok found my book um, (laughs) through a book talker. And it was through sheer coincidence. She just happened to go because it was like pride month or something. She typed in, Gay romance. And somehow my book popped up. Thank God. I wasn't running ads or anything. It was just fate. And she loved it. And she had like 70,000 followers on TikTok. And then she started pushing it. And then other TikTokers picked it up because that's what they do. And then that kind of, that's when it really started to go. But I had already been fostering the Patreon by then. I had, I'd probably say probably maybe 150, 200 people in my Patreon by then. And I was doing a little mini fix. I was letting people write, read as I wrote. But I didn't really have a cohesive tier structure back then. I had honestly just gone to another male author's Patreon and copied what she was doing in the beginning before I started to realize like what works yeah. for me. And that's when I started really paying attention to when my when my numbers would jump. What am I putting out when my numbers jump? What is it that people are asking for? Polling my group. And then I realized that the biggest draw for me is again those four people in a poly relationship because it was so controversial in my main group in the beginning there was a a whole faction of people that wanted the twins in my book series to have one boyfriend that they shared and I was like "Mm, no that doesn't work for me I have a whole seven book series they each got to have their own partner that's just how it is I can't help it It's, it's already planned and then that started like a whole mad crazy fight in my group and People started fighting over whether it should happen, whether it shouldn't happen. And then what's taboo, what's not. Because my whole goal was to keep the book just dark enough to still be mainstream. I didn't want it being banned. I didn't want it being not allowed in like Amazon bookstores and stuff like that. Like I didn't want it to be too dark that it was a dark romance per se. So then I was just like, I could see the characters leaning towards the four of them being in a poly relationship because they all live in the same rela- they all live in the same house. But again, I knew it was gonna be controversial. So I was like, all right, I'll put those stories on Patreon, and then people who want to read them have access to them, and the people who don't want to read them can just keep on scrolling. And there that way it will keep it less controversial. I did not realize that there were so many people who wanted that relationship because the very first story I put out, I just myself before i even had a social media person i just put out like a little one line thing and it was like oh this is about these four characters doing dirty things and it blew up i picked up 200 patrons overnight 200 and i put my minifix at the five dollar level i put all of them at the five dollar level because that's my first hit free. Yeah. I make sure that everybody gets in on that ground floor. And usually they upsell themselves. If Because when they start reading the work in progress, they only get one chapter a week at the $5 level. And I put sometimes up to three chapters a week out. And then they don't like having to wait for them. So then they upgrade to the $10 level. Then they want like the $25 book at the $25 level. Yeah. So like they just keep upselling themselves. So I don't really have to do anything like that. I just need to get them in the door. And I do that with these core four fix, and also with giving them prompts. They give me prompts and then I write the stuff that they want to read, like writing my own fan fiction, essentially. Yeah. So those are what make my Patreon successful. And then capitalizing on that success, I created this very exclusive feeling for the $50 right. tier because people want that feeling of exclusivity. And I think a lot of us try to make a money grab while we can. We're like, oh, if they'll buy if 50 people will sign up, maybe 300 people will sign up to the $50 level. And I think that kind of if I show that I have 50, 100 people on my $50 tier, but there's 300 spots available, that makes it look like maybe I'm not doing enough to get that. But if every year... That tier is sold out. People are like, why is that tier sold out every time? Why? I want to be in that tier. And they stock it. They wait for that card to decline because somebody's card is going to decline. And when it does, somebody will swoop in and steal their $50 spot. And then it gets ugly. But yeah. you have to keep that feeling. You have to keep that exclusivity feeling. And that's what I sell, Oof. essentially. Oh.
0: And now we have to talk about OnlyFans, which is that not one. that one, but <laughs> obviously not only your merch store, but I one thing I was just really intrigued with Looking at both your merch and then your signed bookstore through your site is that they're two separate stores, technically, with two separate reward structures. Right
1: now, okay. they are. I'm yes.
0: curious, like, from I'm sure this was like related to the software you're using. Tell me why you chose to do that or why you maybe had to do that.
1: Honestly, up until a month ago, it was all one okay. store. But because I do my merch through a drop shipper and because I do my books through my own personal assistant who does all of my shopkeeping. It was getting too hard to have a shipping structure where we could accommodate the overseas international readers and our local readers because there was such a huge discrepancy between shipping and merch and shipping and books that we were having to charge people stupid amounts of money for every item they upgraded just to accommodate on both sides. And it was just getting to be too complicated and, and almost absurd. So for a very short-term fix, we just created a separate Wix site for the books so that we can have the shipping separate and clear up that issue. We're right now looking into a Shopify account and then I'm just going to go wide and I'm going to take over doing a far more in-depth merch store because there's a lot of stuff in the works right now that we're that we're manufacturing that we can start selling in the store. But if I keep it the way it is, then it would be like books and some merch over here and then merch over there. And it would just be too much. So we're looking into a, a Shopify store that will allow me to sell my audiobooks, my ebooks, everything, because I'm getting out of KU. Now is the time for me to go wide. This is the perfect time for me to expand because honestly, even if I lost 48% of my royalties, I would still be making 30K plus a, a month just off my other stuff. And that is the safety net that I wanted to create before I ever did something like get out of KU because I needed to know that my bills are covered and everything else before I make that jump because we all see the down, the instantaneous, our rankings tank, everything. KU punishes you, Kindle punishes you for leaving KU. Oh yeah. And we've all seen it. Yeah. So I wanted to have that safety net in place, which is why I'm waiting till the Shopify store gets put together and then we're going to pull it all and, and go from there. But yeah, for now, it's just the two separate sites just as a band-aid essentially, just until the Shopify store gets where it needs to be because even that is a complicated endeavor, just trying to get everything where it is. I hired somebody to literally walk us through it. And that's, as a matter of fact, that's a phone call for tomorrow. So yeah, so it's just a lot of things, a lot of balls in the air right now. We're trying to like juggle to keep everything status quo while we work behind the scenes to make everything more cohesive.
0: One, thank you for being like, that was such, there was so much knowledge that you just shared about moving. It's (laughs) you have to build these systems. And I think very, for a lot of people listening who are like looking up to you and seeing where you're at, it's somewhat refreshing to know that we all still struggle with what software do we use, switching things around, right? Like that, I guess these things never go away.
1: I just need everybody to know that I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I know that people probably are like, "Wow, she's really got herself together." No, I have a team of people. I have autism and ADHD. I am a creative at my core, but I am also weird about weird things. I just I have weird quirks that are very hard to get around. I'm very blunt. <laughs> I'm very honest, and I I talk about things that people are very uncomfortable with. So I have a team of people that kind of tend to like. Now, anyway, like I didn't before, but I have somebody who is like my business partner. She handles all of the back end stuff. She does all of my merch. She does all of my graphic design. She does my formatting. She does my editing. She does my narrations and translation proofing. She does everything for me and she is very well compensated. But before that, she made a deal with me that, God love her, I don't even know how she agreed to this, but way back before I was making any money at all, I said to her, if you will just do the stuff I need for you now, like I need now, I will give you 50% of everything I make. I'll give you 50%, even if that's $5, I will give you the two fifty, and we'll come up together. Like I promise I won't ditch you when I start making money. And she agreed to it because we were friends and we just have been rocking and rolling this whole time. And we've just picked up people. I have two assistants that one for my personal life and one for my virtual stuff. I have a social media person. I have a publicist. I have a ton of people that help me keep growing this business. It's not just me never sleeping. Like I have a team and I just want people to acknowledge that because I feel like I don't wanna take total credit for it. Like the ideas are mine, the books are mine, but I couldn't do any of it without the six people who work for me and make all this stuff happen behind the scenes because I'm a mess. I am a mess. I almost missed this interview. It was 2.20 and I was like, oh my God. And I was just like, I just ran upstairs. I am a mess on my best day. So just to, just so everybody's clear, like I'm not some genius. I just have a very good team.
0: Having a very good team is the sign of a great leader, which is pretty, pretty, that's a pretty genius (laughs) thing to do. A lot of people are afraid, right? To What you're taking a. In a sense, for for people who are listening who are at or close to your level in the sense of I'm doing really well in KU, I've had this career. A lot of people, they get precious about the money, not in a bad way. Like you definitely don't want to spend all your money as an author. But there's a difference between lifestyle expenses and business expenses. You don't necessarily want to invest back into the business. So you end up being stressed out. And then as well, not only have you done that, but you're also taking a leap to You've now invested, you've built these other revenue streams and now you're taking back your freedom. That is something that would make a lot of people fearful. And I'm curious, was there any fear for you in making these decisions that go against the status quo? And if there was like, what got you to overcome that?
1: I am afraid of everything. I won't even agree to go to dinner unless somebody tells me what the parking situation is in advance. Like I'm afraid of everything, everything. So I will occasionally just do weirdly impulsive things, quit my nursing job and deciding that I'm just going to try to make it full-time as an author off of my very meager 401k. I just, this is going to sound like this is the witchy woo-woo part that everybody hates, but I was very much into manifesting at that time. And I just like, when I quit my job, I had just sat down for a night and I just really thought about it. And I was like, I cannot go to that job one more day, not one more. I was so done. I was like, if I have to live in a cardboard box, I will not go back to that job for more than the two weeks I need to, to get through it. And so I literally sat down and Jim carried it and wrote myself a check for a million dollars. And I slid it under the blotter of my desk. And I was like, you got five years, you got five years to make that million. That's it. And like I said, everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. I, I couldn't even begin to tell you the stuff that went wrong. It would sound like I was making it up but it was just like one thing after another. And I was like watching my money just go down. That's why I was crying the day on Hinge Launch because <laughs> Neve Wilder, who was one of my co-authors said, oh, this is good, this is gonna be your breakout series. She saw that the cover of that book and she was like, this is the one, this is the series. It's gonna be like your big hit. And I was like, the book's not even written yet. And she's like, I'm telling you, this is the one. And I'm like, okay. And then everything went wrong. Everything went wrong on the release day. Like they didn't publish the book in time. My ads didn't go up in time. Nothing went well. It was the very first and only time I ever tried to use ads on a release day. <laughs> and it all went horribly wrong. So I I definitely made that leap and it was like, oh God, this is terrible. But then all of a sudden everything turned around. Everything almost overnight went from being horrible to just growing and growing. And It's once you see what you think you can accomplish actually being accomplished, it makes you bolder in a sense, and at least more trusting of your own instincts. And I realized at first I kept telling everybody, I just got lucky. I just got lucky that a book talker found my book. I just got lucky that I came up with an idea that worked. I just got lucky. And, And honestly, I had to stop and be like, no, you came up with this idea. If she had read your book and it sucked, nothing would have happened other than maybe she would have just trashed your book and that would have been the end of it. So I had to take accountability for the good things that I was doing as well as the bad. And then once I did that, and I started to really think of this as a business, I realized I needed to reinvest in my business and that's scary stuff. You don't want to take money that you feel like you're just now finally getting your hands on and be like, here, I'm just going to throw it out there and see if it works, throw it out there and see what sticks. So I tried to make very, strategic decisions and i didn't go too big too fast yeah. but again i was very lucky with the merchant stuff because my stuff is all done in-house like molly that does my stuff she's on my payroll so like she if i ask her to do a hundred things if I ask her to do 12 things, it's all the same price to me. Other people don't have that. Other people have to pay per, you know, per item to have it designed. But even with my merch, I was very strategic because when we were designing it, she was like, do you want your name on the merch? And I know as authors, we love having our name on everything. We love it. Like we love pens and everything. There's bags and totes. and, But honestly, that's the stuff that people toss or they have and they forget that they even look at it. And so she was like, do you want, like, I would have like quotes of, my, of stuff from my books and she's like, do you want your name somewhere? And I was like, no. And she's like, that seems counterproductive. And I'm like, it's the exact opposite. Because to me, if I see, a, I have a shirt that says one day away from shaking my ant farm, like an Etch-A-Sketch, which has out of context means nothing, right? It sounds funny, but it doesn't mean anything. I've had so many people walk in and be like, what does that mean? And I'm like, oh, it's from my book series. But if they had seen onlyjames.com, they would have been like, ugh, whatever, it's promotional. And they would have just forgot about it. Not having my name on my merch is very much intentional and just very much another way of trying to always make everything like a conversation, always trying to make everything, how can it work for me long-term in my business? And it's stuff like that, that I've instinctively figured out. And then there's other things that obviously that I'm studying and researching and reading constantly to try to like, And not even author-wise, but just in marketing in general and like what will work for authors, what won't, and just trying stuff out. And again, I'm now at a position where I make so much money off my Patreon and my merch that I can afford to be a little creative. And if it doesn't work, I'm not really damaging anything long-term, which again, a lot of people can't afford to do right now. But it's why I'm trying to make classes on merchandising and Patreon, because I think There are things that I've figured out and I've tweaked that will definitely help people grow their Patreons and grow any subscription or any, even merchandising. I think you can do small things even in the beginning to help with that. But it's just, it's very slow going in the beginning. And I think a lot of people get discouraged early. I know I did. I like when I had those 32 patrons, I was not giving them the attention they deserved. And I should have been, I should have been from the very beginning. And so those are the mistakes I made that I think other people need to realize that 32 people might seem like nothing, but it's your gas money, it's your groceries, it's it's your book cover. It's all something. And I think a lot of people just don't think of it that way. They think they need to have everything just like overnight, just immediately be a sensation. They need to have a breakout this or a breakout that and like everything has to be just some big, huge success. But like success comes in like measures. I never knew how much money other people made in Patreon. I never looked. I never looked because I didn't care because other people's money doesn't concern me. My money concerns me. So I was gamifying my own Patreon. So if I, like right now, my goal for the end of the year is 20,000 a month. So that is what I'm focusing on. That is what I'm working on. I don't care what anybody else makes. I care about getting to the next 20,000 and then it's good to 25,000. I'm not stopping until I'm the last podcast on the left with their $55,000 a month. I just have this like, in my head, I just need to get to that next level. And and I think that a lot of people aren't doing that. I think they're comparing themselves to other people instead of acknowledging their own goals and what they've already accomplished. And a lot of people who are mid-list and higher, a lot of them are leaving money on the table because they don't even have a Patreon and they already have this super rabid fan base. So... That's where I'm at, where I'm trying to spread the good word. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Some kind of missionary like for Patreon or subscriptions and merchandising. I feel people aren't really taking into account like that exponential growth and how to scale being an author. I think they see it as a very one plane thing, and like a unilateral thing where you're not ever going to be higher or lower. You're just like an author is an author, but that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of different ways you can expand your empire and make things happen but i think just people don't they get bogged down in the little things and don't think big enough so to speak
0: yeah no that's all we're on the same page as you and i think it's really inspiring to hear and just with what you've done even with talking about the merchandise like your store like the designs you have all of it's incredible and even i was curious from a pricing standpoint for your merchandise how are you deciding that is it something that like i know you're obviously have your print on demand costs but are you having a set margin on top of your print-on-demand costs? If I was to go use a print-on-demand site, upload my design, how do I know what to price my merch at? Cause that's so difficult, right?
1: There's formulas you can use, but I'm not going to lie. I have absolutely no idea how we decided to price my merch. Um, cause I didn't do it. Molly did. We wanted to keep it affordable. We didn't want to make it like, cause I know if you look at Redbubble, if you look at Zazz- like it Zazzle, I think they charge a fortune. For a t-shirt is like $35-40. And most of that goes to Redbubble or whoever it is that's creating the merch. Like very little of that actually goes to you as an author. So, we wanted to keep it wasn't necessarily about making a lot of money. It was more about having the visibility, having my brand represented outside of this little universe we have and expanding it out there. So, we didn't really put too much stock I'm sorry, my cat is losing her mind. If you can hear that, I apologize. But yeah, we didn't really put too much thought as of like at that point when we first started into our margins, into exactly how much we're making per t-shirt, per sticker, whatever. We make a we make a decent profit, but I don't think it was a decision that we sat down and were like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do that with the Shopify store. We're going to really start focusing now, especially since we're doing the audiobooks, we're doing everything in-house. We're really going to start focusing on paying attention to, what the costs are and that sort of thing because merch was always my third tier, so to speak. Like I was really focused on writing. Then I was really focused on Patreon. Now it's time to shift again and really put the attention towards the merchandising part of it and and really get that streamlined and figure that out and figure out how to best push that because there are people who buy my merch that aren't even readers. They just think it's cool. They just like it and i just think that there's i don't think you should do everything at once i think you can make small steps for each of those things like for a patreon for merchandising that sort of thing i think if you try to go too big too hard too fast you're gonna burn down you're you're gonna feel like nothing's working you're gonna feel like you didn't do it right and i think people will just be disappointed so i think like very small steps when it comes especially with merchandising because that's like very much not something that you're seeing from a lot of authors I see it on some of the seven-figure authors that write male-female romance, some of the sci-fi stuff, but even that is a lot of them putting their name on merch. It's like book bags, water bottles, stuff like that. I don't see a lot of people really focusing on actual merch. It's more like swag that they're selling. So I think that this is a new uncharted territory for indie authors, but I think it can be lucrative, but you have to build your fan base first and then really lean into the merchandising part of it. I don't think it's something that like baby authors need to worry about. Worry about getting your audience, worry about getting that Patreon started, figuring out ways to make Patreon work for you to build an audience, and then worry about the merchandising once you have an audience to sell to.
0: No, it makes total sense. And I have to throw in a recommendation. If someone wants to check out merch from a non-author, but a YouTuber, because the YouTube ecosystem is probably five years ahead of us in merch, check out Danny Duncan. He's made over a hundred million dollars from his merch. And he's not a huge channel. Almost everyone I know knows about his merch. That's how popular it is. And following the same principles you shared about create something people want to wear, don't put your actual name on it. Danny Duncan's nowhere to be found in his merch, but I'll just say the merch is Virginity rocks. You've probably seen it.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing. Again, I think people think I'm making merch to expand my author brand. When you should be thinking I'm making merch to make money. In the beginning, all I wanted was people to know who I was. I just wanted a way to get a conversation started now at the Shopify store. Now we're gonna start like marketing to people who aren't even readers. This is when we'll probably start bringing in ads and stuff like that. Maybe Pinterest, stuff like that. Not the usual streams for ads in the beginning necessarily, but just starting to market to people who aren't necessarily interested in my books, but are might be interested in the merch itself. Because I think that, you know, there's no reason to limit it because my name's not on it. You know what I mean? So there's no reason why people wouldn't wear it, even if they have no idea who I am. And that is true that YouTube is way ahead of us. Honestly, influencers are all way ahead of us in how to expand your brand, especially when you have absolutely nothing concrete to sell them. You know what I mean? Like you're selling yourself as an influencer. You're sell- as a YouTuber, you are- if you're selling you. Like you sitting in front of a-, a camera, that's all you've got. So you have to find creative ways to make money off of that aren't like, hey, can you just give me money? Here's my Venmo. Because that only gets you so far, unless you're a Twitch streamer, in which case, apparently, you can make a very good living off of it. But <laughs> so. that's so
0: great. No, this has been amazing, only. And my last question is where can we find you? Where can we stay in touch with all the amazing things you do?
1: The best way to find anything you want to know about me, you can stalk me on my link tree, l i n k t r dot e slash onlyjames, O N L E Y. And I have every conceivable link there. So if you want to find me and you can't, that's, that's on you. Okay. because <laughs> so the there. <laughs> There's nothing that I haven't put in that stupid link tree. I love it. It's all there. I love it.
0: The link tree will be in the description or the comments, depending on what platform you're listening to. Only this was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that is it for this episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Only again, thank you so much for coming on. I learned so much. Only's mindset around growing her business, around building her team, around building her merchandise out it is just incredible. And it was an honor to be able to learn with and from you today, only. If y'all wanna learn more about subscriptions, best place to go is subscriptions for authors facebook group i'll link to it down in the description and if facebook groups aren't your thing we have a free book for you to read all about subscriptions that you can also get by going down the description and checking out the links to the free book i hope you all have an amazing rest of your day things have been so much fun but busy in the world of subscriptions for authors we have a lot of really cool things launching towards the end of this year not only do we have cohort 2.0 of the accelerator we have author personas which is a quiz that'll help you figure out how to best run and build your cuny as an author we'll be having literally an award show to cap off the year which is going to be incredible and so much fun to recognize some of the outstanding authors in the cuny and we're even doing a subscription boot camp that will be taking place in the facebook group completely for free so i hope to see you all there at all these fun events and things we're doing but in the meantime i hope you have an amazing rest of your day happy writing and don't forget storytellers rule the world (laughs) I'm